3: Hi, and welcome to The Fast Track. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and uh, today we've got a topic that is uh, something that has just been fascinating to me from uh, the very beginning, since I was a a really young child, and I want to tell you a little bit about that in just a moment, but uh, I guess there's a couple of kind of housekeeping things that I want to get out of the way early on because you're going to hear some uh, some paper shuffling along the way here. I'm, I'm looking at a sea of notes in front of me. I've got a laptop. I've got my phone going. I've got all kinds of things happening here. And uh, I just wanted to tell you that if you do hear some of that paper shuffling, that is me going through a series of notes or looking for information that... Um, is all over the place because there's a lot there's a lot of information about today's topic. And, and today's topic is, by the way, uh, the fastest car on earth. And it's the outright fastest car, the outright record holder, the land speed record holder. And uh, I'll give you some history about it. I'm going to talk about the car itself, the driver, you know, the search for the driver, you know, how all that happened. And it's something that has just fascinated me from the very beginning because when I was a kid, uh, and this goes way, way back into the uh, the mid 1970s, early 1970s. I'll tell you how long ago this was. I, I, for Christmas, I wanted a gift that was a hard copy version or hard cover co- version of the Guinness Book of World Records. And uh, <laughs> that right there shows you how long ago this was. Uh, you can just look that up online now, of course. And I did get that as a gift. And uh, one of the first things that I flipped to would be the um, automotive records. Anything that was, um, you know, the fastest, the, uh, the longest cars, you know, the uh, most outrageous cars, most expensive, whatever it happened to be at the time. But one of the things that really piqued my attention was the fastest car in the world, of course. And at the time, uh, there was a car that was out there that was called the, uh, the Blue Flame, and it was a nineteen. It, the record's broken in 1970, but this was a rocket-powered car, and it achieved a speed of about 622 miles per hour, and that was a again back in 1970. Uh, that's, uh, that's really moving even now. That's really really fast for now. But uh, that record held, I believe, until about 1983. And uh, so you can hear that's when that paper shuffling happened right now. Uh, 1983, that record was broken uh, by a guy named Richard Noble, or at least he held the record in 1983, I should say, in a car called the Thrust 2, and that achieved about 634 miles per hour. So we're not talking about a a huge, huge increase there. We're talking about like 12 miles per hour was all he bested the other record by at that point. And then 14 years later along comes a guy named Andy Green. And we'll talk about Andy Green in another uh, section here in this show, but, uh, you know, the search for him and who he is and and, uh, why he was qualified to drive this vehicle. But he is the current... Outright land speed record holder right now for uh, the one mile and the one kilometer, the flying mile and the flying kilometer, and uh, these are FIA records. They're official records. They were timed by USAC officials. These are uh, that's the United States Auto Club, and that is the the officiating group that makes all of this um, well official. Uh, you know, they're the ones that have to measure the record in order to make it uh, to make it so. And of course, Guinness you know records this as well. but in October of nineteen ninety seven, so that's fourteen years after Richard Noble broke the record, um, you know by again, twelve miles per hour, along comes Andy Green in the Thrust SSC and the thrust ssc is the vehicle that we will focus on today but the record that he uh he achieved on that day or you know on, on october 15th and there were many many runs which i guess we'll we'll talk about a little bit but not in depth we want to talk about the main record breaking runs but the the average speed that he achieved on october 15th 1997 was 763.035 miles per hour that is a supersonic speed. So this car was designed with the idea that they were going to go supersonic. And that's, again, that's another little something we're going to touch on here, and, you know, what, what it takes to go supersonic in a car. It's unbelievable the, uh, the the engineering that has to go into this vehicle in order to make this happen. I, I should tell you that the... the average I say it's the average speed uh is 763.035 because you have to make two runs you have to make a uh, a run both directions you know whether it's north south east west in this case I believe it was a north south run so the first run uh was run at 759.333 miles per hour the second run was 766.609. They averaged the two together to get the 763. Again, that is a uh, you start measuring in Mach speeds at that point. So uh, this is Mach 0.1020. So they just broke the the, uh, the the sound barrier in this vehicle, which is incredibly impressive for a vehicle. Now this is a um, of course it's a vehicle that has to be. Um, on land, when it breaks, this it can't be a low flying aircraft, which uh, we'll also discuss. And you know, actually, you know what? I'm going to talk about that right now because I think this is one of those like fascinating little bits of information that comes up uh, that that maybe not a lot of people understand. The car looks like a uh, like like a jet. If you look up the thrust SSC, which I encourage you to do on um, you know just Google image search or whatever, it's very simple to look it up. Um, the car, of course, it was designed by math and science. I mean, that's that's why it's shaped the way it is, but it's two enormous engines, which uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, too, which is the uh, the giant Rolls-Royce jet engines, and uh, then there's like a, a pencil shape in the middle, like a fuselage, and it's a very, very long vehicle. I want to say it's like 54 feet long. We'll, we'll talk about uh, length in a, in a moment as well. Boy, I'm promising a lot. I hope I get to all this. I really do. Uh, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I'll do my best to get to every one that I say we'll talk about, but... Uh, The the car itself—it looks like it does look like a rocket ship on land or or a jet on land. And uh, one of the the fascinating things about this is that the car does have to remain in contact with the earth through the whole run, through the entire measured mile or measured kilometer, as it may be uh, that we're going to talk about. um, You know how they how they get this and how long it takes to get up to speed and all that. But uh, they do actually look. The full distance and make sure that you know the the car is leaving uh, a tread mark, not tread marks, but but tire marks on the surface for that whole time. Now, one thing that complicated this is that you know, and and, you know, other vehicles they're they're measuring to make sure that you know it's again it's not like a low flying aircraft. They don't just fly at you know like a foot above the ground for that distance because then there isn't the rolling resistance that there would be with any uh, you know terrestrial vehicle. So the, the one thing that complicated all this with with this vehicle is that. Uh, because there was there was a sonic boom that was associated with this vehicle, and of course you know it's a it's a um, an arid environment. It was a, it, the record was broken in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada, Las not Las Vegas, but in Nevada, um, north kind of like the northwest corner of Nevada. And uh, one thing that the uh, the sonic boom did was it, it sort of not disintegrated, but it kind of, it kind of made the um, the tire tracks. Difficult to see. I mean, it kind of blasted them away as it went over, as well. So um, it was difficult for them to 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 prove, but they did in fact see that there were tire tracks the whole way. So I always find that fascinating, and I think maybe we can talk about wheels in just a moment too, because the wheels are interesting on this car. Everything about this vehicle is fascinating. I've been uh, reading some of these uh, these websites that are you know like maybe engineering sites or you know sites where uh, they're just fans that are just you know, as, as deeply excited about this as I am, and, you know, they'll, they'll talk about these little tiny things that make this car different to unique and and special in some way, and, um, of course, it's not like any other car that you would see on the road. It's it's a lot different. Um, I said that, you know, it's powered by jet engines, and, uh, in fact, it's two Rolls-Royce Spey turbofan engines, and initially, they were the, uh, the Rolls-Royce Spey 202 models, and then eventually, they went up to uh, the Rolls-Royce Spey 205. Models and there's a lot of interesting facts about those engines and and the speeds and you know the um, all kinds of things we need to talk about. Um, you know, I, I mentioned just a moment ago that it, this car did break the sound barrier. And I, I one thing that we should note here is that. The sound barrier varies by uh, by altitude and even by temperature. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about the place that this vehicle broke the record, I think it was uh, the altitude is something like, and I'm I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but it's like 3,900 feet above sea level. So, at sea level, the sound barrier is something like 761 miles per hour, and it has to be 59 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) So that's how particular that is, right? So it it changes. So if you go up to uh, between oh. I'm going to give you a meters uh, uh, measurement here, not feet. I don't know why I'm doing that. But 11,000 to 20,000 meters above sea level, the speed drops down to about 660 miles per hour at negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, the temperatures vary greatly. The uh, the speeds vary. Uh, that's almost that's almost 100 miles per hour off uh, when you get to a different, uh, different altitude. So very specifically for this record, you know, at three thousand nine hundred feet above sea level, uh, when you know Andy Andy Green piloted this vehicle at seven hundred and sixty-three miles per hour, he was breaking the speed barrier, the uh, the sound barrier, uh, which I think is uh, is just fascinating. All that you know changes. So you know, when people try to break this record elsewhere, uh, they're going to have to deal with uh, with stuff like that as well. Now this happened again. This happened on october 15th of 1997 and of course there was uh, an official press release that went out and i'll read just a little bit of this because this is how kind of the world became aware of this it says the world uh, the world motorsport council uh homologated a new world land speed record set by the team thrust ssc of richard noble who is the owner of the team or the founder of the team along with about three other people by the way driver andy green on on 15th of october 1997 at black rock desert nevada usa This is the first time in history that a land vehicle has exceeded the speed of sound. The new records are as follows. And they give the uh, the flying mile and the flying kilometer. And of course, they measure different ways. Of course, this is a British team, and you know here in the U.S. we don't necessarily measure kilometers all the time. We go with with, with uh, miles and feet and all that. And uh, just for a, a heads up for everybody out there, I mean, this is the uh, we're talking about the difference between the metric system and the imperial system. I think everybody knows that. Uh, but one kilometer is equivalent to about 0.6 miles, uh, which is about 3,280 feet. If you want to break it down that way, and one mile of course Um, is about 5,280 feet if you're using the Imperial system. And uh, the the way that they break this down, again, the flying mile and the flying kilometer, these are the measured distances where the actual record is taking place. So, you know, there's a ramp up to speed. At full speed, they measure it from a starting point, a finish point, and, uh, and then there's a slowdown area. And, of course, you know, the only thing that they really care about is that one mile or that one kilometer, and they call it the flying mile or the flying kilometer. The flying mile speed, we've already talked about many times, 763 point zero three five miles per hour the flying kilometer uh, again that shorter distance is about seven hundred and sixty point three four three miles per hour so that means he was gaining speed as he was going farther and farther now the end of the um the end of the press release it's a very short line it just says in setting the record the sound barrier was broken in both the north and south runs and this is from paris uh the 11th of november in 1997 so uh, roughly about a month after you know they had to verify all the speeds and everything um I will tell you this. I will tell you that I did a um a quick thing. Uh I went to a, a speed distance time calculator and I inserted the numbers and it just gave me a rough number because the numbers are so large that it doesn't exactly uh give me it doesn't give me the, uh, the the most detailed number that I that, that I wanted. It's more rounded to seconds, but um I put in the the numbers and the speeds for the mile and the uh, and the, the the speeds given. And according to this, this car, this Thrust SSC, went through that one-mile section, so, you know, one mile from start to finish, exactly one mile, 5,280 feet, in roughly, you know, four and a half seconds something like that. So (laughs) a full mile, I mean, I think we can all picture what a mile is and imagine that going by in about four and a half seconds. And the kilometer speed, of course, was even even faster than that. I think that was about three seconds. Uh, Of course, that's only just a little bit over half a mile in in distance, really, if you want to look at it that way. Um, But the the flying kilometer was done in, in just over three seconds. So really, really fast. I mean, uh, again, nothing really can relate. You can't really relate to anything like that on Earth. So it's a very difficult thing to relate to. But but just picture that the next time you're traveling on the road and you can kind of, if maybe you can even look ahead a mile and imagine being at that point, in, you know, in in four and a half seconds. It's just, it's mind blowing. It's an astounding record that's been broken. And we've got a lot more to cover here. We've got, uh, you know, several other topics that I want to talk about. In fact, I'd like to talk about, you know, getting somebody to, drive this thing, somebody uh, who can pilot this thing successfully, and uh, and the, the steps and processes that they went through to do that. And we will do that in just a moment after we take a break for a word from our sponsor. And we are back, and you're listening to The Fast Track, and I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And we were just before the break saying that uh, we were going to talk a little bit about um, how they found the driver, how they, uh, how they selected somebody to drive this, uh, this incredible machine um, at such an, uh, an amazing speed on land. And I'm going to get to that. I promise you I will. But there's a couple of things that I think I, I may have uh, kind of skirted over here at the, uh, at the beginning that uh, I need to go back to. And uh, I want to talk about the engines just a little bit. And we, we said that it's Rolls-Royce Spey 205 turbojet engines. These things, between the two of them, produce an approximate 100,000 horsepower. I've seen numbers a little bit higher than that, 110,000, something like that. But we're talking about a ballpark of about 100,000 horsepower between them. And I know that they're typically measured in thrust output and all that. But uh, to be honest, for a lot of us, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense exactly what that, what that means. And... Um, the reason that they, uh... Um, or, or have to be so powerful is because uh well you know as you uh, as you get going faster and faster and faster and we've seen this with you know some of the other land speed record attempts you know with with other vehicles with piston engine vehicles uh, with wheel driven cars and that is that the faster you go the more wind resistance there is against you and and it just it's like this uh, this um this give and take this push and pull that happens where you need more power but there's more force coming against you and more power more force against you and even in a car that's shaped the way that the Thrust SSC is shaped, which is very—I mean—extremely aerodynamic. You wouldn't think you could design a vehicle more aerodynamic than this if you were to look at it. Um, It's—it's it's unbelievable how much pushback there is against this vehicle. I mean, I've, I've seen numbers, and, and they like to do—you know—comparisons like this. Number of tons that you know, tons of force that are against the vehicle, and at that speed, you know, at the at the high rate of speed that it's going—seven sixty plus miles per hour. It's something like it it's got the equivalent of like like pulling three three and a half full size elephants behind it or something like that. you know it's like that's the amount of drag on the vehicle as it's trying to push itself forward. So um, it, it, it just becomes exponentially more and more difficult the faster that you go. And I, I figured I'd just mention that at at, at this point because uh, we're talking about some of the uh, the more interesting numbers, I guess, that go along with this. And at the rear of this, uh, this whole thing, at the rear of the craft, um, and they do call it a craft, not a car, <laughs> it's a craft, um, the temperatures can be more than 300 degrees Celsius, and to the rest of us using the imperial system, that is... 572 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's incredibly hot back there at the back, of course, as you would expect. Um, The materials that have to be used, you know, all of this has to be considered that you don't just melt the back end of the vehicle as soon as you fire up the engines, because they are afterburner engines, um, or or jets, rather. And um, there's also a good bit of noise that goes along with this, as you might expect. Um, The sound levels are just unreal, I mean, it's 175 decibels. At at speed, and it, I would tell you that the air begins to heat up just because of the sound at 174 decibels. So uh, it's like um, I think it's the equivalent of if you can imagine this, a quarter stick of dynamite igniting, only it's a continuous sound. It never lets up. There's not like one moment when, you know, it's 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 intolerable and then it goes away. It's like that's a continuous roar at 175 decibels. That's just, uh, I think, 163 you could actually break glass. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those crazy, crazy things. And, you know, one of the other things that's a little bit nuts about this whole thing are the wheels. And you wouldn't really consider the wheels to be... Um, as important as, as they are, I mean, maybe that's not the right way to say this because you know wheels, of course, are important, but it's not the standard wheels that you're thinking of for an automobile as well. Now, these are not driven wheels, and that's another thing we've got to talk about boy there's a lot um, it, it, the car is not or the engines aren't driving the wheels in order to make this go it's simply relying on thrust the wheels are are there to keep the vehicle on track to keep it straight and uh, you know of course that's a function of the chassis, and the, of course the driver has a huge input into that as well, obviously. Uh, but the wheels themselves are made of, uh, not of rubber, of course. They could, they wouldn't stand 763 miles per hour. There's no way that they would do it because um, these wheels are subjected At speed, you know, when when they're um, at top speed, they're rotating at eight thousand five hundred RPMs. So the tires are spinning that quickly at seven hundred and sixty-three miles per hour, and uh, of course that's far greater than any kind of you know rubber or carbon fiber or anything like that would stand up to. They are made of solid aluminum, and it's something called. L twenty seven aluminum. I don't know exactly what L twenty seven aluminum stands for, but they are they were forged by a company uh, called HDA Forgings, and then they were machined by another company, and that's Dunlop Aviation and they tested them on a dynamometer at uh, speeds of up to 9500 rpm so they exceeded what they expected to to reach out in the desert and they actually you know achieved that it was a successful test obviously but you know the wheels come along with other things as well now, now it's strange enough that they're solid aluminum and you can find again you can find you know Google images of this on online you can find um, you know actually there's a, a pretty interesting short documentary that I'll, I'll point you to in just a moment um, about the wheels just the wheels themselves and the shape of the wheels because that 's important, uh, but you have to remember that these also have to have different uh, different roller bearings they also have to have um, some type of lubrication to keep them going so that was another company and there's a company called skf that uh, that created these special tungsten carbide roller wheel bearings for these uh, for these wheels in particular and uh, for the lubrication the lubrication technology that allows them to continue to spin at that fast you know at eighty five hundred rpm in the desert, so you got to imagine the environment that they're in as well. You know, the the sand and the, the dirt and rocks and all that. The uh, the, the company that was, uh, it, I guess, awarded the contract to uh, to do this was Castrol. So Castrol developed lubrication technology uh, that that. Uh, that, that lubricated the wheels in order to allow them to go this fast. Now, now the wheels themselves, I, I don't think I mentioned this, they weigh about 353 pounds each. So these are substantial pieces of metal. And I mentioned just a moment ago that, you know, there's a, um, a short documentary that you can watch, and it's an easy thing to search online. Uh, if you just search thrust SSC wheels or, you know, wheel technology or something like that, you know, anything you will know, point you to the right place. The company that, that did these, or the one that machined them, I guess it was Dunlop Aviation, and HDA, HDA4 uh, genes, they together went out and tested these as, as they do out in the desert and uh, they found that the first set of wheels that they were using uh, the profile of the wheel was digging into the the surface too deeply it was going down to the bedrock that's just below the surface and um, it was actually damaging the wheels as they spun and they knew that you know at a certain speed or above the speed that they could even test it at because um, they're just dragging trailers behind them with these wheels you know with with weight on top of it you know the approximate weight of the vehicle um, in water ballast and that's how they test them how they, how far they sink down into the earth. And uh, so that you know, they're dragging it with a van or a truck or whatever. And they realized they were sinking too deep, so they they went back and they changed the profile of the wheel. Came back for more testing, and finally determined that yeah, it, it does allow this thing to have the grip that it needs, as well as you know the um uh, the ability to sink in just the right depth. And, you know, it won't it won't go in too far. It won't it uh, won't stay you know too far on top as well, because that would allow the vehicle to kind of you know slide and skirt all over the place, and uh, and that would be no good as well. Um, boy. Okay. Okay, so the, the wheels are one thing that I, I found fascinating. There's, uh, gosh, there's so much here. I think I might even just have to skip over this, but there's a scale model test that was done, a 125th scale model that was uh, was built, and it was tested on a military rocket sled. That's how they tested the uh, the, the design, the shape of this whole thing, and, and to understand, you know, that uh, how this thing would would operate at supersonic speeds, the, the design, how it would hold up. Um, again, a 125th scale model, and there's, again, more information about this. I, I encourage you, as I always do, in all of these podcasts, and I do this every single time that we'll, we'll talk. I, I hope I remember to, uh, but I but I say, say that uh, this podcast is probably just a, a good starting point for you to kind of dig in and do your own research on a lot of these things, these, a lot of these topics, because I just simply don't have enough time to, to talk about everything as in-depth as I would like to, because each one of these things, you know, the wheels, the driver, the car itself, I think, you know, some of the 3D printing technology that went into even the steering wheel of this thing, um, all of this is stuff that, that that it deserves you know its own its own show really and uh, and I'd love it if you would dig into it and maybe you know get back to me with questions or maybe we can even focus on it in, in future shows um, but but again, use this as kind of a springboard to uh, dig into these topics much much deeper because there's a lot of information out there and um, I, I do want to talk about the um, the driver and, and how they selected that driver, but um, first, you know, I was just thinking about this, and uh, one place that I would like to point you before we go much, much further here is back to, uh, I have another podcast that's called Car Stuff, and Car Stuff is is coming back very soon, uh, but we had done a, a, a podcast for a good nine years, uh, up until about 2017, the very end of 2017, and We had uh, myself and my co-host, his name is Ben Bolin, and we we had an archive of material that has uh, at least 800, maybe even 900 shows. And you can find all of those on our our website. It's called carstuffshow.com. And if you go to carstuffshow.com, you can search all of our podcasts going all the way back to the very beginning. And there's a couple that are related that I think you would be interested in. If if you like the Land Speed Record show and you want more information about the Land Speed Record, anything that was related to it, we did a full show on another car that we're going to talk about at the end of this podcast called the Bloodhound SSC. We also did a show on belly tank racers, which are um, just, uh, that's another really interesting one, mostly salt flat racing, but um, again, fascinating, I think. And then we also did a show on the 10 fastest cars on land and, uh, or 10 fastest cars in the world rather. And, uh, even, you know what, even going so far, we've, we've done, you know, high speed trains, you know, so we've talked about some incredibly fast vehicles and, uh, and I think that's a good place to go. So go to carstuffshow.com and, uh, and search the archives and you'll find some other land speed record information that, uh, that I think you'll like a lot. And, um, you know, there's just so much. As you can tell, I'm I'm kind of all over the board on this one. There's a there's a lot of information about this car that every little tiny thing is just fascinating about it. And I and I a couple of things that I really want to get out there that I, I again I hope I do. And one thing that I don't want to neglect here is the aerodynamics of the whole thing. And, and I'll just be real brief about this because there's a, there's again a lot to say about it. But let's just get past this one thing because I found it fascinating. Um, it's so important, you know, that, that this thing, of course, remains, remains on the ground. It remains in contact with the Earth, and that's for control, you know, so that the driver is able to, uh, you know, do Reasonably direct it in the in the direction he wants to, and hopefully you know reliably steer it in the direction that he wants to. But uh, the other reason is that you know this is essentially a ro- a rocket. You know it could, could be like a, a flying ship at any moment. You know we've all seen race cars that catch a little bit of air underneath them and they fly. Uh, they go they're going so fast that they take off in the air. They do flips. Um, they become if they spin around backwards, they become, uh, you know, instead of being the having the downforce, they have more of an up thrust uh, that brings them up into the air. And sometimes, you know, even headed forward, if you get you know, air underneath, uh, the same thing happens. They take off into the air. That's exactly the case with this. Now imagine, you know, at 760 miles an hour if if this car were to flip, that would be a, a, a well, it's a life-ending event really. I mean, there's really not a whole lot you can do uh if you're if you're uh, you know, you're already on the ground in this thing. There's no chance for um, um fuel dumping, there's no chance for an ejector seat or anything like that. They've and they thought about that in in this case. And uh to be honest, they decided that um they're just really at this speed and at this at this height, which is, you know, just a couple of feet above the ground, you know, where the driver is, that uh, it's really difficult to survive a wreck at this this speed. So they can't, they, they Countered that by just going over the top with stability and control, and trying to make this the safest vehicle to drive, as far as um, you know, b- maintaining control. Instead of you know, building a roll cage that wouldn't do anything in the end, other than add weight and and com- you know, a complex nature to the design of the vehicle. So you know, the driver, the the, the, the poor driver of this thing, has to get into this this vehicle knowing that uh, you know, a wreck is essentially a life ending event, or it can be. Um, life Likely would be at that speed, and, you know, again, you're already on the ground. You can't eject. You can't do any of that stuff. Um, But but just so you understand what's going on, and there are a couple of um, countermeasures. So there's a, I guess (laughs) they call it the responsible aerodynamic system, and I don't know exactly what that means, but this thing can be... Uh, and it's not even activated by the driver. It's just an automatic thing that happens, but it can be activated within 10 milliseconds and it adds an extra three tons of downforce to the vehicle, almost immediate. So that's immediate. Um, something goes wrong, you know, like, so, so let's say this thing just goes a few degrees off off course and, you know, things are not going right and, you know, the systems can tell. I mean, they read it instantly. Uh, Ten Within 10 milliseconds, an extra three tons of downforce is added to this. And, and I found this pretty interesting too. Someone said, one of the engineers... Uh, just I, I don't remember who exactly said this, but I wrote it down because I thought it, thought it was fascinating. You know, in just a moment, but right now let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. Vehicle as it travels through the, spe- the air at the speed and on the ground at the speed, if it's one degree off upwards... Uh, it's going to take off. If it's one degree downwards, he said it's like you're mining, which I thought was kind of a funny way to say it, but uh, it truly would. It would dig itself into the ground at that speed. So um, just, again, so many fascinating little things that go along with this. Ten milliseconds for an extra three tons of downforce on this car. It's incredible. There's so much information about this car out there that uh, that uh, it's a wealth of information that, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches, I guess, maybe is what I have here in front of me. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all of it, but I did want to talk about the driver for sure because I've been promising it not only from the beginning of the show, but uh, just because it's kind of a fascinating story about how they got to – the person that they eventually chose to drive this thing. And as you can imagine, it's not a uh, decision that they take lightly. It's something that, you know, you have to be chosen for. And uh, there's more of a process to it than, than what you might think. And, and I'll get to that in just a second. But we've already mentioned who this is, who the driver is. Um, his name is Andy Green. And Andy Green... Uh, was born in Warwickshire. He's an English-born wing commander for the Royal Air Force. He's a fighter pilot. And it kind of makes sense that they went to a fighter pilot for this instead of a driver. I mean, this thing is, is more or less, uh, again, like a like a jet on the ground, really, with wheels. And, and that's really essentially what it is. So he has quite a bit of experience operating vehicles that, you know, are powered by jets and, and has... Um, you know the know-how and the uh, and the ability to control these types of vehicles at these types of speeds. I mean, he's a good choice and you'll find out why in just a second as we go, as we go through this, but I do want to tell you that the the one of the founders of the Company here, the one that uh, you know, the Thrust SSC, the um, the initiative to go supersonic in a vehicle. His name is Richard Noble, and I mentioned Richard was the current record holder. He was the um, you know the guy that drove the vehicle that was called the Thrust Two back in 1983 to his own land speed record, and the one that Andy would eventually break in this vehicle. And so Richard was, of course, heavily involved with the choice of. Who would be behind the wheel for this one? And, you know, initially it was thought that maybe Richard would do it himself. But Richard decided that he needed somebody that had even more skill than he had with this. And maybe he was getting a little too old. I don't know exactly what he was thinking. But he needed somebody that had what he called exceptional skills in order to be able to achieve this goal. And so he decided that he didn't have the skills to do this one, which is pretty incredible to begin with. And they needed a driver. The reality is that they went to somebody, you know, they went to a lot of people that had experience going fast. And so they they selected a group of about 30 people. Well, 30 people applied or 30 people wanted to do it. They might have gone to more than that, but 30 people did apply for this. And you'll find that as... You might expect uh, it was drag racers and pilots, and it was all drag racers, all pilots that that applied. But they did have to kind of decide how they were going to whittle down this group, and they said the most obvious thing to do was to give them all a sanity test and and then uh, and take the ones. (laughs) This is kind of funny. Let me tell you. This is like a tongue-in-cheek thing, but they said the most obvious thing to do was give them a sanity test and then take the ones who failed. Which I, I kind of understand, <laughs> you know, to drive a car, so you know, supersonic on on land, it's it definitely takes someone who's uh, a little bit out of their mind, right? But uh, I don't want to say too much about. Uh Andy's mental state at this point, but I, I think he's fine, everybody. I think he's fine. We'll, we'll find out what he went through in just a moment. But the, the again, the 30 were first narrowed down to about 16, and they were given a lot of different intelligence and personality tests along the way. So, you know, it's not just uh, getting behind the wheel and seeing what you could do. That was a big part of it, of course. They took them to several different circuits and allowed them to drive, you know, formula race cars and all kinds of crazy things like that and allow them to, you know, kind of show what they have their skills behind the wheel. But a lot of it was intelligence and personality tests. And the reason is that they were trying to find someone that was uh, very analytical, somebody that could be trusted to make changes not only on the fly, but to be able to help the team, to be able to contribute the most to, you know, solving problems and and controlling the vehicle. And, and, you know, it kind of had to be a well-rounded person, somebody that could do all of these things all at once and do them quickly and efficiently and, you know, just make sure that they could trust this person's opinion as well. You know, that the recommendations that they give were, were, were spot on. So once they got down to finally eight, once they, you know, they whittled it down again from 30 to 16 down to eight. And when they got to eight, here's the interesting thing, is that only pilots remained at this point. They, they remained in the top eight spots. So all of the drag racers and some of the pilots were gone at this point. So it, it was down to just pilots at that point. It turns out that uh, they were the ones that could kind of handle like the extreme stress and discomfort. And one way that they did this was they put them through a couple of surprise tests. So, you know, they had a couple of days and a couple of nights where they're at this place they, call, they called the uh, the Center of Human Sciences. And the team, they spent a lot of time, you know, working on with them Uh, you know, training and, you know, how they would deal with, you know, the, the, the hot desert environment and how that would affect their mental capacity and, you know, whether or not that would affect them as far as, you know, like, you know, some of the decisions that they would make. And it's a surprise they were kept awake all night one night in uh, in a heat chamber. They, they put them all in a heat chamber, and they were filmed at various times, and they were given computer-based tests at, at different intervals, and they were kind of uh, tested at that point to see how they dealt with, like, fatigue and stress and, you know, how their performance was, uh, was measured at that point. Um, you know, based on all of the stuff that they were they were subjecting them to. And a couple of the people, you know, there, there were maybe three or four people that kind of rose to the top during that. And then, you know, a- after that, then they did some more driving testing and just on and on and on. They, they, they finally got to the point where just one man out of all these contenders finally comes out on top. And again, it was this British Royal Air Force jet fighter pilot by the name of Andy Green. And Andy Green, I think I mentioned this already, but he was born in 1962 and um he, again he's he was uh he was made in in 1998 so a year after he was um a year after this record was made. Uh, he was made an uh, Officer of the Order of the British Empire, which is a, a prestigious award. And if you're looking for more information about Andy Green, and uh, and I think you might be after you kind of find out exactly what he had to go through with all this, you could find it all over the place. Of course, there's a Thrust SSC website that you can go to. It's just thrustssc.com. Actually, just do a keyword search for him in Google, and you'll find a lot of information about him everywhere. He's done many talks, of course. There's, uh, there's documentaries about him. In fact, I watched one that was really really fascinating there was a, there 's one that was actually a cockpit recording of the day that he made the final run the uh, the one that was the record breaking run it 's just really interesting he also is in the shop talking about it in front of another vehicle. This is one of the most fascinating bits of of footage that I've found of Andy Green, because it combines both what he did in the vehicle and, you know, him outside of the vehicle being able to kind of like calmly describe what's happening at at what points. It's just, it's really interesting because, you know, he tells you exactly how he begins the run, how, you know, he's getting up to speed, what's happening at the time, the radio commands that are going back and forth between him and, uh, you know, the the base camp or whatever they call the, uh, the camp. Of people that are that are watching this whole thing uh, from a distance, of course, uh, but it's it's fascinating to see how he brings the vehicle up to speed, and, and that's alone that is interesting because it doesn't just take off like a like a rocket, like you would think it would. He has to slowly creep up to speed so that all of the um, the debris from the desert, you know, the rocks and the sand and all that, doesn't get into the engines. And there's a certain point, I think it's about eighty miles an hour, that he can start to really kind of you know open it up and let it go, and then the speed comes in- incrementally faster. I mean, it's it's amazing. How quickly this thing uh, it gets up to speed, and once it's at speed, how quickly it gains speed. Uh, but it's in, again, it's interesting to, to watch. And one thing, I'll I'll I don't think I'm ruining anything when I tell you this, but there's a series of gauges on the on the dash that are in front of you. And actually, the uh, the view out the windshield is di- it's difficult to see. And I, I would guess that it would be difficult for him as well. He's mostly doing this by gauges and um, a little bit by sight. But he's got his hands on the wheel, and it's it's not a typical steering wheel. It's not round. It's got it's kind of a yoke design. Almost at some point, and he's going incredibly fast at this point. He's still gaining speed. The vehicle does start to track a little bit off. It's not exactly on the line that it's supposed to be on. And he's talking about this very calmly when he's in the shop. But you know, in the car, he's just as calm, and that's so impressive because here's what happens: the nose of the vehicle. I can't remember which direction it's headed. I believe it's headed off one one direction or the other by several degrees, and. He's got to have so much steering input into this thing. You would think it would just be, you know, uh, you know mashing the throttle forward and, and hanging on and just going straight and that's it. But there's a lot of input on the steering wheel by Andy Green and a lot of effort put in, you know, with, with what he's doing controlling all this. At one point, he has got 90 degrees of input into the steering wheel. So his left hand, it's in the uh, 12 o'clock position instead of being over at the nine o'clock position. That's how much steering input he's in, he's got into this thing. And he's traveling again at more than 500 miles an hour, faster than a jet would travel in the air, a, a commercial jet would travel in the air. And he's on the ground on a, a desert, you know, like a sandy, <laughs> sandy surface in a vehicle with metal wheels, two jet engines that are that are full throttle. It's just it's it's an unbelievable believable moment and uh, he maintains control and regains control and then completes the run it's it's so impressive to watch and it's more impressive to see how he uh, is able to control the situation and keep it all kind of reined in. He's he's so calm under pressure. That's exactly one of the reasons why they chose him and why some of those tests that they gave him early on, the intelligence tests, the, the kind of the analytical things, you know, the, the personality tests, all that, um, they knew that, you know, if something like that did happen, he wouldn't just simply give up and, you know, that's it. He He tries to maintain control. He tries to fight to get it back under control, and he does so and then makes it successful. And it's just, it's, again, it's, it's, Ultra impressive, it really is to to watch how calm and collected this guy is under pressure. And again, to to watch the final run and him just to describe the process of you know the the ramp up, the flying mile. The shutdown, and then you have to turn the car around uh, 180 degrees and go back the same direction and do the exact same thing again with different wind currents, and uh, it's just it's it's an unbelievable thing to watch, and it's it's really easy to find online. You can you can check that out, um, but again, just search for Andy Green and you'll find all of this. It's uh, he's he's just a an impressive person all around, and uh, and I like hearing him talk anyway. I mean, you, you watch um, you know, some of the other talks that he's given when he's in front of a large group of people, sport coat and tie, and discussing the land speed record very calmly. It's, uh, it's, it's, he's just an impressive person to, uh, to listen to. And of course, he's got some great stories as well. So um, there's that. And uh, again, uh, just check him out if you get a chance. And I would like to talk about another project that's coming up. And it's something that we've heard about for, gosh, we've heard about it, it seems like for decades now. Not kidding, like almost decades now. And it does involve Andy Green. It does involve the land speed record. And, uh, and we'll get to that. But right now, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor.
2: going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here, along with you fans, covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of... $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And we're back, and you're listening to the Fast Track, and I'm your host Scott Benjamin. And just before the uh, the break, there we were talking about Andy Green and the amazing process that he had to go through in order to be selected as the as the pilot of this vehicle. As, and actually, I, I will call it a pilot, not a driver. He was a pilot of this vehicle, really. Um, I do know that you drive because he was technically touching the ground, but uh, he's he's a, a lot like a pilot in this in this situation. In fact, um, that's what his experience was, and. Got all the tests and uh, you know some of the the stressors that they put them through in order to be selected. It was just an unbelievable process, really. I mean, it was, a, it was incredible. I found a couple of other little notes here that I want to mention before we get into the successor of the uh, the Thrust SSC. And really, not a whole lot on these, but um, something that I found really, really fascinating as I, as I dug through some of this. One thing was that you know, of course, the the vehicle wasn't uh, wasn't built here. It wasn't uh, created here in the United States where where the record was broken. It was from overseas. It was, a, it was an English built vehicle, they had to have it transported over somehow. So they used this enormous cargo plane. And I find this really funny is that, you know, the cargo plane that brought the team and the vehicle over here was only capable of doing something like 340 miles per hour in the air. Uh, it's bringing a car that, you know, does more than twice that, you know, more than twice that on the ground. It's just, a, it seems like a funny, it's just a funny image in my head. I don't know why I, I thought that was hilarious, but uh, I wrote a quick note that I should mention that, uh, but maybe one of the other, more, maybe more fascinating, I don't know, or something that you might have more interest in here it was about the fuel, and we hadn't really talked about the fuel a whole lot, and as you can imagine, it, it takes a lot of money to run this program. I mean, it takes as as the as the, uh, the program progressed the thrust ssc people realized exactly how much that was going to be and it's it's tens of millions of dollars it's really really expensive in order to uh put forth an effort like this you know that's that's everything that's paying for the team that's paying for the testing and the vehicle itself and you know fuel is one of those charges and it's going to take an awful lot of fuel to do this. Uh, in order to even make an attempt at this run, and that's not not just one run, it's it's many, many runs. I think that the, the Thrust SSC ended up making something close to 70 runs. The record-breaking runs were somewhere in the 60s. So they made, you know, like 65 and 66. I think those were the record-breaking runs, but it, that's the number of times they're traveling, you know, 12 miles across the desert and then 12 miles back. That's, you know, that's one run or two runs, rather. But it takes a lot of fuel in order to do that. And so on the website, early on in the early days of this project, they started mentioning that it was going to take a total of about 250,000 gallons of fuel in order to do this, in order to, uh, to make this effort work. So once they got to the United States at the Black Rock Desert, 250,000 gallons of fuel in order to make it happen. That's jet fuel, of course. It's very expensive fuel. And there was no single source to provide this. There was no one that was, you know, offering up the money in order to be able to do it. So they put out a, a, I guess it would be like an early GoFundMe thing, really, if you want to think of it that way. But people were donating money, and this is the strangest thing. There was no single source, again, so, so... they said, you know, if you could just help out by buying maybe 25 gallons of fuel for this program, that would be helpful or, you know, what, five gallons or whatever you can afford to pay for, please help us out. And it became kind of like a um, a, a national pride thing. You know, the, the British were chipping in to be able to say that, you know, I, I helped fund uh, this, this, um, this effort in order to maintain – uh the the land speed record in the british name because you know there's something that is very it's it's typically a very british record and again 250 gallon or 250,000 gallons of fuel to do this and i'll tell you i i found a number here that was astounding that is related to fuel and i want to share that with you um now we t- we're talking about you know the two Rolls-Royce engines at speed for, for long distances, we're talking about 12 miles at a time at full output. The twin engines, the thrust that they're developing is like, you know, 50,000 pound-feet of force, which is the equivalent of about 100,000 100, horsepower. The amount of fuel that is burned at speed is just unreal here. 4.8 gallons per second. So that's 4.8 gallons. So imagine, I think we all can can picture like a five-gallon bucket. It's roughly that much fuel every second that this thing is in operation. So even even at, you know, top speed in that measured mile, that flying mile, that four or five seconds, they burned 25 gallons of fuel in that four or five seconds, you know, that uh, that it took them to do that record run. It's just one of those facts and figures that come out of this whole thing that you'll find there there are hundreds of these if you if you really dig into the Thrust SSC program. You know, it has its own um, place in a museum now. You might wonder where the vehicle is. And the, uh, the Thrust SSC is at the Coventry Transport Museum in Coventry City Center in England. And it's part of the permanent collection there. They have a huge collection. So I guess if you get there, if you get to the Coventry City Center in England, you should check out this uh, this display. They've got something like 240 cars, like 200 motorcycles. Uh, of course, they've got the thrust SSC on display. And I believe this is also the claimed birthplace of the bicycle. So they have something like 200 bicycles on display as well. Uh, it's just a, a really interesting place. It must be a massive collection. But again, it's it's now a, um, a museum piece, and you can go and visit it and look at it and ooh and ah over it and you know check it all out. I don't think that they will allow you to get into it or anything like that. I'm I'm sure you're kept it at a distance but uh, it's still a fascinating vehicle to look at. I, it's a little bit it's also a little bit sad to see a vehicle like that parked in a museum. Sometimes I'm a little bit sad that it's not going to be out and uh, and doing its thing anymore, but I guess that's what happens to some of these older cars, you know, they maybe may not, might not be safe to, you know, continually run it, you know, year after year after year, so maybe that's a, maybe that's the best place for it at this point. But there almost immediately, almost immediately after the Thrust SSC had broken this record, there was a uh, a call for someone to break the record. Again, as there always is, there's always someone who's going to want to top that. You know, we always try to go fast, a little bit faster, a little bit higher, a little bit longer. You know, whatever it is. But this car, uh, there's another new vehicle out there, and this is the new name of it. It's the Bloodhound LSR, which stands for Land Speed Record. But the Bloodhound is something that we have been hearing about for approximately, I'm going to say, 10, maybe even 15 years now, maybe even 20 years at this point. It seems like it's been mentioned for a long, long time. The interesting thing about this is that they're not only trying to break the record by a few miles per hour or, you know, maybe a hundred miles per hour, whatever it is. They're going to shatter this record. They want to achieve above one thousand miles per hour in this vehicle. Now, we're talking about a car that, again, it it meets every requirement that the thrust SSC met as far as, you know, staying on the ground and, you know, traveling the the flying mile, the flying flying kilometer, et cetera. Uh, But it has to go um, 1,000 miles per hour in order to achieve the goal that this one is looking for. It's a similar, and I I will say it's similar in design, but it's different in a lot of ways as well. This one has a couple of different things going for it. It's not only powered by a, a jet engine, A single jet engine in this case. It's also powered by a hybrid rocket. So this is a jet powered and Rocket-powered vehicle combined into one, and I believe there's even a piston engine in there somewhere. There's a there's a big Jaguar V8 that runs like the auxiliary power or something like that. It's a it's just an incredible machine. There's a there's a whole episode of car stuff as I mentioned on on the uh, the Bloodhound. I think it was called the Bloodhound SSC when we did this, but now it's called the Bloodhound LSR. And the reason is because the ownership of this company has switched over. There have been plans to run this car for a long time. It's been in development for a long, long time. You know, at least maybe. 10 10, 15 even 20 years but uh, recently very recently in 2018 I believe the uh, the program went into what they call administration uh, they were running out of out of money real quick and they needed an additional 30 million US dollars in order to operate to run I think it's like 26. Millions sterling pounds or something like that. It was, a, it was a lot of money. A guy by the name of Ian Warhurst uh, stepped in at the last minute and he bought the entire project. Instead of just donating the $30, 30 million that they needed, he bought the whole thing. He bought all intellectual property, the car itself, the team members, you know, everything, everything involved with the program. And as far as, far as I know, as, as late as March of 2019, they had formed this new company called Grafton LSR, which later became known as just the Bloodhound LSR team, and uh, they are Planning, or they have been planning as, as late as March of 2019 to make a record run in this car. So they're going to make a go of it, and you'll see this car testing. You could find images of it, you could find video of it running, and it'll be running on rubber tires, which it's not going to in the desert, but it's going to have a similar set of tires as uh, as the Thrust SSC did. So those uh, tires and wheels, I guess, I guess we can call wheels really in this case, will be used. And it's just it's it's got a whole new set of not only features but also problems that come along with it. So the Bloodhound is another thing. That need to look at uh, with a, a whole different group of facts and figures and information that is just, again, just fascinating. One thing that I should mention here, and, and you see this in one of the uh, animations that they, they sent out. I think it was, gosh, this goes back to about 2008 uh, when I saw, first saw this animation. So it tells you it's a long time ago, but at a thousand miles per hour, the goal speed that they're they're hoping to travel, and this is going to happen in South Africa, by the way. This this will all, all go down in South Africa, um, again, on a, a desert situation, a, a flat area. That is the car at speed will be traveling faster than a bullet that is shot out of a three fifty seven magnum, so it's literally a car that is faster than a speeding bullet, as they like to say, so um it's it, and again, in the animation, they kind of describe exactly how that happens and everything. all of this is just extremely interesting to me, and I hope it's been interesting to you as well. um again, there's a a lot of information out there, and just use this as a a springboard. To dig into any one of these little topics that I've just only briefly covered, and uh, and really find out you know about the body, the chassis, the powertrains, you know even the dimensions of it, the history of it, the people that are involved—it's just every bit of this thing is just fascinating to me. And I hope you found some of it interesting as well, if not all of it. You know, if you'd like to reach out to us and and contact us, there's a few different ways you can do that. And of course, we're on all forms of social media at this point, so we've got uh, with Facebook and Instagram where we are the Fast Track Show. And if you want to talk to us on Twitter or check us out there, we are the Fast Track Pod. And we have a website, of course. We've got a new show website that you can check out, and that's the Fast And of course, you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on, on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you happen to listen to your podcast. And if you like what you've heard, tell your friends. We're always trying to get new listeners, and uh, you know, we're, we're happy that you're here as well. So hope you keep listening and uh, having as much fun as we've had making this show. Thanks a lot.